0: This past Friday, our nation set aside a day. They do it every year, and I'm thankful for that, to honor and remember those who have fought, those who have served, and those who have died to defend our freedom. I know we're all thankful for the privilege that we have to be Americans, and it came because of the dedication and the sacrifice of so many. We also have a freedom in Christ, and it came at a great cost of him personally as well. The fact that every Sunday we can gather here and celebrate and rejoice in freedom, freedom in our faith, but also freedom as Americans here, we have so much to be thankful for. As you know, those who have been with me for a while, I always like to take the opportunity on July 4th and Memorial Day and Veterans Day to acknowledge what we have as a nation to talk about what made this nation great and God did. But it took a lot of men and women, too, to defend that way of life. But I don't want our children to grow up and not hear it as well and realize how blessed we are in the nation. There's never been a nation like America more blessed. We have had one constitution, think about this, for 240 years. I don't know if you know the average, but the average for every other nation in the world is 17 years. Well, we've had 240 years. Other nations have had 12 to 15 to 18 to 20 different constitutions. But our constitution was written... On the foundation of God. And that's why it's still here. 240 years later. We witnessed this last week. The elections here. And that's part of our constitution. It was established from the very beginning. How it happened. And very few nations have. A peaceful transition of power. Like we've experienced. And we've had. And I'm praying for that this year as well. Tuesday we elected a brand new president. To the United States of America. I know many of you were. Of that. favor There may be a few in the room here. That were voting the other way. But whatever whatever way you voted, I'm sure we're all asking the question this morning, now what? What's next? We've watched this week, too, as they've talked a little bit about uh, President-elect Trump picking his candidate, his uh, cabinet, and desiring to kind of get people around him. And uh, so a lot of us are saying, you know, what is President-elect going to do for us, President-elect Trump going to do for us these next four years? And I said that's a legitimate good question. But I think a more pertinent, greater question would be, what am I going to do these next four years? We've talked so many times here before that the problems in America are not going to be solved inside the beltway of Washington, D.C. The problems in America are going to be solved inside God's house. When his people, who are called by his name, get serious about following and believing and worshiping God Almighty. We have an incredible privilege as Americans to worship in freedom. We have an incredible privilege to be God's chosen people. God has set you and I apart, I believe, with all my heart, because it's biblical for times such as this. We're here for a very specific reason. Many of us look at the time sometime and figure, man, this is pretty bad. Well, imagine yourself being Jewish in Germany in 1941. That's what I might consider bad. Or being in China during World War II, or being in Russia during Stalin's reign. In the reign of Marxism, Marx, Karl Marx. We have an incredible opportunity in America today to exalt the name of God. I've traveled around the country extensively, around the world extensively, as you know. And I can't tell you how many people in foreign lands and other nations around this world, in Africa and Central America and South America, thank me for America for being that shining light upon a hill. We have every opportunity to still be that shining light. But it's going to start with you and I today. I have several thoughts here what we're going to do these next 4 years. Just two. Regardless of our political views, we need to see this as an incredible opportunity to turn our nation back to God. It is. It happens one life at a time. It happens when a church gets serious about serving God, serious about who we have, who we are in Jesus Christ and go out and tell the world all about it. Tell the world the greatest story. So we need to realize that we us have a great opportunity. I realize a lot of times that uh, when we get a present that maybe is our choice, we kind of say, okay, that's good. Now I'm kind of abdicate my authority to him, my responsibility to him. And that, that man, I'm off the hook right now because we got a guy up there that's going to fix things. No. I'm praying that he does the right thing, and I think he will. But you know what? The right thing is Jesus Christ. And the right thing is what we have. We have a story to tell. So we need to realize we have an incredible opportunity. That number two, we to need to be the church. To be the church, God's bride, the bride of Christ. We need to live like it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about having trust in God. As you well know that in 1957, President Eisenhower signed off on the fact that we're going to put in God we trust on all of our currency. You pull out a dollar bill today, you'll see it. There's a lot of other significant features and significant parts of that dollar bill that if you study some time, and don't have time this morning to tell you about it, we will one day. But look at that dollar bill and kind of look it up online. And see what that means. But in 1957, we put it on there. In 1964, we put in God we trust on what? On all our currency. All the, I mean, all our change and all our coins. So we decide that that is the model of the United States of America. In God we trust. But do we really? It begs the question as Christians. Think about this for just a second. 96% of Americans say they believe in God. They don't say which God, but they say 96% of Americans believe in God. Do we truly believe God? Though? Do we believe God who, for who he is? We believe in Him, but do we believe Him? Am I walking a life that says, my DNA says, I believe God? I believe Him. I'm here because of Him. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm made in His image. I have an incredible life here in this world that came from God Almighty. In God we trust. In God we trust. Heard a story about a famous actor that was invited to be the keynote speaker for a huge fundraising dinner. And he came there, and this. Famous actor was known for his voice. He had a voice above all voices. I mean, not too many people had a greater, more recognizable voice. He could do a commercial without ever seeing his face, and everybody knew who that was. That was that great actor just because of his voice. So, at the end of the meal there, and it got time to hear from the keynote speaker, he said, Well, I just want to do something simple tonight. I want to give you an opportunity to give me something to read. I'll look it up here in my, on my phone here, or if you got a copy of it, or a poem or something like that, I want to read a poem tonight. Nobody had anything, so he kind of sat there for a few minutes. All of a sudden, there was this little hand in the back of the room. A man stood up and said, I'd like to ask you to to read Psalms 23. And this little man was a pastor, an old pastor. And he said, well, that's kind of strange, but I'll be happy to do that. He says, do you have a Bible with you? I said, I do. Pulled the Bible out of his pocket, walked up there and said, I'm going to read this under one condition. I'm going to read it first, but then I want you to read it. The pastor said, Okay. So this great actor read it. I mean, it was flawless. It was beautiful. This deep, powering voice, and read the 23rd Psalm: "The Lord is my shepherd." Just beautiful. When he finished, got a standing ovation. They all, everybody in the room, stood up and said, "Man, that's unbelievable! Yay, yeah, that's great!" So now it was the pastor's turn to read it. He comes over there a little more timid. Doesn't have quite the voice this actor did, but he read the 23rd Psalm. Didn't get a standing ovation. But the actor was standing over here beside him and looked around, and there was not a dry eye in the house. Everybody in that room was moved to tears because of the way this pastor read that scripture. This great actor walked back over the microphone. and He said, I want to show you a difference here. I said, this is profound. He gave me a standing ovation, and when he read it, you're moved to be emotional. And he said, I can tell you why. He said, I know the 23rd Psalm. But, my friend here knows the Shepherd. There's a difference in our life when we truly believe God. We can believe there is a God. We can go to church. We can be all kinds of things. You can even be pastors and believe that there is a God. But it, your life's not going to change until you truly believe God. And how do we get to that point? Listen very carefully. There's one thing to know it intellectually. you know in my head, I know about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and history and World War II and all these different things, Civil War. And we can know about Jesus Christ that same way. It's in our head. It doesn't move to us believing it until it moves to our heart. And it doesn't move to our heart until we start acting and responding on God's Word. Do you hear that? You know, I can learn about George Washington all day long. It's not going to really change my life. I might become more of an enthusiast about, the word, about uh, George Washington. might become more knowledgeable. might be able to quote figures and all the data about his life. It's not going to change my life. But when we truly become the point in our life when we believe God, you know what happens? It changes my life. I begin to believe in greater ways because I start living on the Word. God's Word lives. I want to live on His Word. I want to respond to His Word. I want to walk in obedience. One of the greatest struggles we have is obedience. God uses the term surrender. You know, surrender is a no-no for a military. We never surrender. never going to surrender. As a man, as a macho person, I'm not going to surrender, man. I'm going to duke it out. I'm going to finish this fight. But as a Christian, the greatest strength, the greatest power we will ever have is when I say, I give it all to you, God. I give up. I can't do it, God. I want to give my life to you. I'm surrendering you to you, God. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I'm giving my life to you. Why? Because I've ran my life for 20 years and it's a mess. I want to give it to you and see what you would do with my life now. I'm surrendering to you. I want to give it all to you. God makes us all different. He makes a difference in our lives. He makes us a new person. It says we're brand new creations. I'm not the same old person. I'm a new nature. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, was concerned about his church at Philippi. He started that church. Remember how he started it? He started it in jail. First convert in Philippi was a jailer. Got saved. Lydia, a lady, started a little church in her house. That was a church plant. Probably one of the first church plants. But he started this church and he had such a love for him. If you understand the epistles of the New Testament, all the, all the letters that Paul wrote, the, the letter to Philippians is the only letter that Paul wrote where he wasn't critical of anything. Nothing. He praised them, but he also challenged them. And that's what he's doing for us today as we look at God's holy word. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27. As you move there, I want to kind of set the stage here. Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church to encourage him. He wants to thank him for being a good work. The first part of Philippians, Paul is kind of talking about his life. He's talking about his relationship with them. But he also tells them in the first part of the book of Philippians that I'm in jail. I'm writing this to you in jail. And he makes reference to that throughout the book. He's going to make reference to it here in a second. But he also tells them, hey, I'm pretty encouraged that I'm going to get out of here. He never did. But he said, I not think I'm getting out of here. And I'm going to come see you. He never did. But he writes about it here you found your way to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, stand with me this morning, if you will, out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's holy word. It says, verse 27, only let your, and let me tell you this, there's going to be four challenges in here that we see, and I'll point them out to you as we do it. Challenge number one, only let your, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. Challenge number two, that you stand fast in the spirit with one mind. Challenge number three, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to, and here's challenge number four, suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word this morning. Father, as we look at your scripture, Father, help us to understand what Paul was writing about to, the, to his audience, Father, but also help us to understand what Paul, through you, Father, because of your power, Father, because of your word, are speaking to us. Father, we thank you now once again for each person here, Father. I pray that we'd see your word this morning, Father, and something in this word, Father, would change our lives yet again for eternity. Father, I pray for every one of us, Lord, beginning with me, that we'd all leave this room in just a few moments different than the way we came in. Father, we love you. We thank you once again for first loving us. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul has given that Philippian church a charge. He's given them a challenge. He's given them a path to walk properly. They're walking good now, but he wanted them to walk better. I could say the same thing about Beaverdam Baptist Church. You know, we're walking well, but I believe God wants to be about continuous improvement. I, I believe God wants more and more. He doesn't want us to be happy at the status we're in, in our spiritual contentment. God wants us to be hungry and thirsty for His Word. Why? Because when we are, He fills us back up. He wants us to seek Him first, always. God has an incredible mission, an incredible plan for the Beaver Dan Baptist Church. He had a great plan for the Church of Philippi. God desires for you and I to be all about His Word, His way. You know, as we look closely at these four challenges, people have asked me before, what is our mission, what is our challenge here, what are our goals, what is our vision? This is it in Scripture. These four thoughts are the vision of Dam Baptist Church. First and foremost, think about this. Challenge number one, it says it right there at the beginning of verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you were to look at let your conduct be worthy in the Greek, it comes from a word called polis. That's where we get the word politics, word citizenship from. And I want you to understand this. Philippi was a colony of Rome. Because Philippi was a colony of Rome, they had the privilege of being Roman citizens. They could choose. I'm a Roman citizen. because Why? Because I live in Philippi. I was born in Philippi. Just like you and I are citizens of America, they were citizens of Philippi. It had all these rights, all these responsibilities, but all these, all these privileges as well because I'm from Philippi. So I have these things. In America, we have incredible privileges too. We have the American dream. We have the American privileges and citizenship. People all over the world would love to come to America. and Many of them are. love to come to America. because Why? Because America is something special. They've always heard about America. They know America is something special. We know America is something special. With all of our problems, there's never been a greater nation still than America today. We have an incredible opportunity here to live in America. But you know what Paul was telling the, the church at Philippi there, the people of Philippi? Listen. Even though you're Roman citizens, even though you have a lot of rights and responsibilities, I want you to take your guidance not from Caesar but from Christ. He's saying walk worthy of what? The gospel. Have you ever pondered that thought? What does it mean to walk worthy of the gospel? I can tell you a very short definition That Walking worthy of the gospel means to walk in such a way as you point other people to Jesus Christ. I want to walk my life. I want to live my life in such a way as people are pointed to God. When people look at me, do they see God? When people look at me, do they see somebody different? Do they see somebody that really has a different relationship with somebody? Remember the, the, the mission trip we just sent to Kenya? A woman came running up to a bunch of our folks in that mission trip. and said, A man came running up and said, Hey, there's something different about my life, my wife. I want to have what she has. Her husband saw Jesus Christ in her and he wanted it too. When other people see you, when other people see your family, when other people see there's something special about you, do they ask, What is it that's about you that's so special? That guy's kind of special. What's so special about him? Where did that come from? I'm glad you asked. It came from Jesus Christ. I'm nothing special, but Jesus Christ lives in me, and he's special. We have an incredible opportunity to walk in such a way as to point people to Christ. Paul is reminding them that you have responsibilities with your citizenship that comes from heaven as well. We don't need to walk around this world separating ourselves from our fellow man. What we need to do is walk around this world like we're ambassadors in Christ, okay? Some of you have been in foreign nations before. You realize the embassy is there. That embassy is actually officially known as American property right there. It might only be an acre or less in the middle of another foreign nation, but that's American property there. It's American people that are representing what? America. We are ambassadors to America. America needs some Christian ambassadors. We all know that. People that are out there representing Jesus Christ in the middle of a dark, dark world, Jesus Christ wants us to be what? Light. He wants us to live in such a way as point people to him. You know, many of you have read through Matthew, and I love the beginning of Matthew there, beginning with chapter five. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. It's Jesus Christ preaching the Sermon on the Mount. They call them the Beatitudes. In the midst of those Beatitudes, he tells you and I that you are the salt of the world. You're also the light of the world. What does that mean, salt and light? Well, it means that he put us in this world to make a difference. He put us in the world. Salt, back then, was a very, very valuable commodity because it was a preservation agent. You know, they take meat and they salt it down and so it lasted. They didn't have the refrigeration we have today. But it also changed the flavor. It was a flavor enhancer. Think about us, you and I, being a flavor enhancer. Think about you and I preserving other people's lives by just sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the light's very obviously. We're to shine light in this world. I want you to understand we're to be salt and light. What does that mean literally? It means that our conduct and our character needs to be God's. Our salt and light is our conduct. Salt is conduct and light is our character. We need to be reflecting God for that sake. Jesus Christ told us that. He wants us to be difference makers in this world. He wants us, we've talked about this before as well, he wants you and I to be impact players in America today. You know, President Trump's going to be an impact player. But you know what? You can be an impact player right where you're at right now for eternity and uh, make a difference in people's lives and be there for people who need help. Alexander the Great, many of you studied him in history, was a phenomenal warrior. He was a conqueror, and he was a brute of a man, but he also had very high expectations of those that followed him, his troops, his men, his officers, and stories told them about him. And uh, one day one of his officers came to him, and said, General, i got a, I got a problem. He said, i got a man that's absolutely worthless. He's a car- coward. He's lazy. And Alexander said, Well, let me meet him. Bring him to see me. So Alexander wouldn't tolerate this kind of character at all. He was brutal. So the officer brought this young person in there and came in and reported to Alexander the Great. And Alexander looked at him up and down for a few minutes, and the little fellow was just as nervous as can be. Finally looked at him and said, what's your name, son? He said, Alexander, sir. Oh, my gosh. Couldn't be worse. First of all, he's part of my army. He has the same name as me. So Alexander looked at this young person with great reflection, also wanting to make sure that there was no mistake when that young fellow left. He looked at him and says, either you change your name or you change your ways. I don't want you to miss the fact that we have Jesus Christ's name all over us if we're followers of Jesus Christ. You've seen it before when we go into a room or somebody finds out we're a Christian. You know what happens immediately? Hypocrite radar. Okay, let me watch this guy. Let me watch this lady, see if, uh, see if they, what that means. Are they really a Christian? My perception of Christian? Or let me watch for a flaw in their character. You know, all Christians are flawed just like everybody else. But they're watching us. They want to see if there's really something different about a person that has Jesus Christ and a person that doesn't. You and I are carrying a name. Listen very carefully. You and I, quite possibly the only Bible that that person's ever seen. We're the only reflection of the image of Jesus Christ that person's ever really seen. Maybe they've grown up and ministering in the jails all these years. I can't tell you how many people tell me they never heard about Jesus Christ. They heard his name, but they know they. they, I was over there one Christmas morning doing a Bible study because it was a Saturday, and that's what Dad did the Bible studies. Went in there, there was two different guys in that room that had never heard the story of Jesus' birth in a manger in Bethlehem and a donkey and all the stuff that goes on with Jesus. Really? And these guys were mid thirties to forty. How do you live in America for thirty or forty years and never hear about Jesus Christ? Sad. It's sad. But they lived in an environment where there weren't any Christians and lived in an environment where nobody was talking about it if they were Christians. You and I have an incredible opportunity to reflect Jesus Christ in this world. The second challenge comes from the second part of verse 27. It says that you stand fast in one spirit. Paul was a citizen of Rome. He was very familiar with the Roman army, so he understood a lot of Roman, Roman subjects. This is a military term, stand fast. What does that mean? To the Roman soldiers, it meant we're going to lock shields, we're going to plant our feet, and we're going to become a stone wall. The enemy is not getting through here. We're going to stand fast. We're not going to let the enemy break through our lines here. We're going to stand that strong. And that's the term, that's the force that Paul's giving this term here. Stand fast in what? In unity. He says that unity above all else. We can't win a war if we're not unified. We can't win a football game if we're not unified. We can't win anything if we're not unified. We can't build God's body of Christ. We can't build the church if we're not unified. Don't miss this thought. You're not naive. I'm not naive either. The church is not immune to division or disunity. It happens all the time. No matter what relationship you're in, unfortunately, many families find themselves in a a situation of division or disunity. Many organizations, the same thing. We're human. You know what? Unfortunately, happens sometimes. We bring our unhuman, and we bring. I'm sorry. We bring our human into a divine or an eternal situation. And so we kind of put our human touch on something. What does that do? It kind of puts some smudges here or there. Sometimes it confuses things. Paul was absolute about being, you, you and I being in union, being in unity here. I want to share a very precious story with you. The story was entitled, The Lord's Prayer in Hell. It was written by a fellow by the name of Captain Leo Thornis. Leo Thornis was shot down over North Vietnam on April 30th, 1967. He was a Navy pilot. And he was captured and he was put in Hanoi Hilton, which was probably the most brutal prison at that time for our American POWs. On the very first Sunday that Leo was in that prison, he got word that they're all gathering out in kind of the open area there where they got to go out for a little recess every day and they lock back in their cells to have worship service. They were going to do it for a few minutes, but they all gathered there. As they got together, there was 42 of them. As they gathered out in that thing, they started singing a song. All of a sudden, the guards and this really mean lieutenant comes running out there and starts beating them. They all start beating on them and say, stop, stop. There's no worship, no gathering together, no worship. So they beat them for a long period there, and they all went back to their cells. During that week, they started tapping on each other's walls and the little signal system they had there. And they're getting a vote. Somebody suggested, let's do worship next Sunday. So they got a vote. All 42 men, all 42 POWs in there said, yes, I want worship. I want worship to a man. The senior officer there, they call him the SRO, senior ranking officer, was a guy by the name of Ned Sherman. Ned Sherman made sure that they all said yes. He wanted to make sure everybody was in agreement because we're going to go out there unified. We're going to have unity. You know what Ned realized as well? He said if they do this, which is in direct contradiction to what the guards told them, I could very easily be taken back and tortured and brutalized. Well, the next week came, all 42 of them out there in the, in the garden. Some of the guards were watching. They gathered in that same corner. And Ned, the senior ranking officer, said, Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, didn't get three sentences into that Lord's Prayer. And out come the guards again. They began beating them all, but they especially beat Ned. And they carried him off. And as they carried off, they realized, all those men out there realized, he's going to be tortured. Well, you know what happened Next. The second man in charge, the second SRO, said, guys, let's say the Lord's Prayer. He began saying it again, got a little bit further into it, but it stopped because they all went out there again and grabbed this guy. Dragged him out, beating him as it went. They realized he's going to go be tortured too. You know what happened? The third man in charge. It went down five men all the way to the fifth SRO. The fifth guy that was in charge, senior in that unit. They drug him out too, beat him. All five of these guys were p- tortured for a couple of days. But after they left, they closed the door. The sixth guy walked out front there. Said, guys that say the Lord's Prayer. That sixth guy was the guy that wrote this story. Leo Thornton. Retired a captain in the Navy. He said they say the Lord's Prayer. They said it. They didn't get harassed. Every Sunday, the rest of Leo Thorsen's stay in that prison, Hanoi Hilton. They had worship on Sundays because they were unified, and five guys had the courage to say, I'll, I'll pay the price. I'll do what I got to do that we can worship our God in heaven. And this is the comments that Leo Thorson put in his book, but also many of them made the same comments to him. He said he'd never seen in all his years in the military, in anywhere, a greater sense of unity than those men, those men wanting to worship God. In hell. In that POW camp. But he also said this. He's never thought about the Lord's prayer. The same way. Since he said it there in that POW camp. There is an incredible blessing waiting for us. As we unite. As we come together. And we begin doing God's purposes in even greater ways. As we begin serving God with all we have. We begin willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to serve the Lord God Almighty. God desires for you and I to be united. He desires for us to be united about the gospel. And that's the next thought here. You know, once we stand firm, once we establish our ground with unity in one spirit, it's time for us to move forward. The third challenge here comes to the last part of verse 27 there. It says, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. What does this mean? It means cooperation. It means that we're going to be like a team here working together. I want you to understand the idea of unity, though. You can't have unity just for unity's sake. Why? It doesn't make sense. Why would I be... What are we united for? Hey, we're having this meeting. What's the purpose? I don't know. We just want to be united. There needs to be a purpose. There needs to be an objective. There needs to be a reason that we get united. The reason that you and I have is Jesus Christ. Unity always has an objective. Unity with no truth is ignorant tolerance. Listen very carefully. There's a big difference between unity and tolerance. There is. I can put up with things, but we're not united. I can be in the same proximity with you, but we're not united. We don't have the same focus. We don't have the same mission. Jesus Christ is the mission. You think about this. The early church. Why do those people willingly say, I'll I'll go to the Colosseum and I'll be eaten by lions. I'll be traumatized by gladiators. I'm willing to die for the cause of Christ. Why? Because I'm united with my brothers and sisters. And we realize it's worth it. It's worth me doing anything. In the history of America... We've seen about 1.3 to 1.4 million people die. They don't have the exact figure because in the early wars that were involved in, they didn't have accurate casualty counts like they do today. But between 1.3 and 1.4 million people have died for the, cause, for the cause of freedom in America, men and women. In the last century, in the 20th, 20th century, 45 million, more than 45 million people have died as martyrs for the faith of Jesus Christ. It's astounding. It's amazing. Willing to go to the grave because they believe in Jesus Christ. Willing to die because I believe in Jesus Christ. I'd rather die than deny Christ. That's what they're saying here. They're willing to do whatever it takes. There's no truer unity than with Jesus Christ. When we have Jesus Christ, we have all that we need. We can be physically together, but we need to be united on the purpose. We need to be able to overlook our differences. At the end, at the beginning of World War II, Britain and France decided they are going to attack Germany in France. So they launched a phenomenal, I want you to think about the dates here, phenomenal amphibious assault. This wasn't D-Day. This was an assault before that. Uh, on the beginning of May 1940, launched 400,000 troops into France to take on the Germans. They realized the Germans had a lot of folks. They didn't realize that they were outnumbered two to one. 800,000 Germans against 400,000 allies between the French and the British. Well, they're there doing so-so for about 20 days, but all of a sudden the Germans got the upper hand. And they drove, the Ameri- they drove the allied forces, the British and the French, all the way back to Dunkirk, all the way back to the beachhead. And they were within one day of annihilating them all. England was frantically trying to negotiate a conditional surrender with Germany. Hey, we give up. Just don't kill our guys. Germany wasn't going to have anything to do with it. What Germany did, what God did, think about this. Germany said, hey, stop attacking them for a minute. I want you to move a big part of our troops around here on the southern part of the things, so we can have them totally surrounded. At the moment, they only had them on two sides. And they realized, you know, if we kind of put the question on it, they'll squish out. So let's, let's stop fighting for a minute. Let's move our troops over here. Take three days. Move your troops around. We know what happened, right? While they're moving their troops around, what did they do? Britain and France got all the boats they could find, all the ships they could find, and evacuated to this and this. 340,000 troops got evacuated in three days off that beach. Praise God. They lived to fight another day. They ultimately, a year later, went back on D-Day with the Allied Forces. But Britain was really feeling defeated. France was really feeling defeated. The Germans were already in France, so they were defeated. But Britain was finished and done. We can't win this war. We're getting ready to surrender all this stuff. Oh, Winston Churchill. Don't you thank God for Winston Churchill? He stood up in front of his nation and said this. He said, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. We shall fight in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never, ever surrender. You know what You know what? Uh, Winston Churchill was saying? Listen, we need to be united and press forward. We need to strive forward for this cause. It's like you and I today. We need to hear that same thing. We don't need to surrender. No matter what's going on in the White House, what's going on in the Congress, what's going on in the Supreme Court, listen, God is still God. I sent out a little text the other day. said, hey, doesn't matter who wins the election. I was hoping for somebody. And I'll be honest with you, he got it. But listen, God God is still king. On, on November 9th, God was still going to be in the throne. God was still in charge. God was going to still be God. God has never needed a king or a ruler or a president to accomplish his purposes. You know who he needs? He needs us. He needs you and I to be the men and women that he's called us out to be. He set you and I apart. Listen very carefully. For such a time as this. It's not an accident that you're born as an American. It's not an accident that you're born here in America. It's not an accident that you're born now to be a part of the solution. Apostle Paul said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. What an incredible epitaph for his life. That's a great epitaph for you and I as well. Jesus Christ is worth fighting for. You know that. I know it. The final challenge here, verse 29, I'll be finished. It says, For you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer him. You know what Paul's saying here? He's putting belief and suffering on the same page. You know what? You're blessed to believe in him, but you're also blessed to suffer. Really? Blessed to suffer? Are you kidding me? Listen to what Jesus Christ said personally. Jesus Christ said this Blessed are those who, perse- who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And I love this part, verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Are you kidding me? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad because I get to be persecuted and tortured and maimed or whatever it might be. He says it. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, for though they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus Christ has set you and I aside to do whatever it takes to reach him. That's why I have such great respect for the men at service in the, in the police offices, in the uh, in the fire and EMS services, and the military services. You know why? These guys have chosen a, prof- ch- chosen a profession where they're willing to say, hey, it cost me a life, I'm willing to do that. I'm here to tell you, I haven't been one. You don't think about that going in. You don't say, okay, I'm signing up to give my life. No, I'm signing up because I want to serve my nation. I want to be a soldier, an airman, or a sailor, or a marine. I want to be these things. Or I want to be a police officer. Why to serve my fellow man? That's why they go in. You know what? They also realize in the back of their mind because of the profession I am, I could serve them to the point of costing my life. They still do it. My son's a Marine. I've told you that before. And standing around watching those young guys, I have whole different thoughts thinking now my son's in as opposed to and Like, I hope he doesn't have to go to war. I had to think about those things I didn't when I was in myself. I was too young and too stupid. But I look at those men and uh, when he was graduating from the infantry school and graduating from his different schools and Paris Island, all these things. I looked at them, and what they say about America's finest, it brought tears to my eyes. Think about that. Because it was. These guys were willing. They're out there just full of life, young guys. They're all good-looking young men, physically fit beyond measure, and uh, just excited about life and have this vip and vinegar about life and enthusiasm for life. And they're willing to go out. Many of them probably went into combat at some point. Pray they didn't die. But to see those young men and women... And realize realized that they were fired up about their mission. They were willing to be sacrificed if they had to. But they were also fired up about their mission. That's where you and I need to be. That's why Paul uses soldiers so often to talk about this. We're soldiers of the cross. Sometimes soldiers of the cross get hurt. Sometimes they get injured. Just like regular soldiers. We have an incredible opportunity to serve the Lord. I want to close with this one thought here this morning. I got a picture to go along with it, and I think I'll put it up on the screen here. I don't know if you saw Friday's paper. Front page here's a story about a fellow by the name of Jay Early Wood. Let me get to many of you have seen this picture in your history books. It's General Eisenhower speaking to the Airborne Division, 101st Airborne Division, on June 5th, the day before they parachute into um, into Normandy. That guy right there is Jay Early Wood. Lives in Hanover County. Listen to this. I've known J. Early Wood now for probably eight, ten years. He and a couple other guys that all go to my Friday morning Bible study came out to our Lord's Supper that we do in the upper room on the Thursday right before Easter every year. And we're sitting there having a little dinner before we go upstairs in this barn and have that Lord's Supper. And I'm talking to him and just rekindling the friendship we had and hadn't seen him for a number of months. And he's saying, yeah, I had to go to the hospital today with the Veterans Hospital. So he told me his ailments and things. He's dealing with some pretty serious things. He's 94 years old this year. He was about 91 at that point, I think, 90 or 91. But I, I asked him, I said, the Veterans Hospital, I said, uh, were you in the World War II? He said, I was. I said, in the Atlantic Theater or the Pacific Theater? He said, Atlantic. And I said, and then he goes on to tell me a story. I'm sitting right beside this guy right here. Precious little, small fellow in stature. But he says, yeah, I was in the 101st Airborne and I parachuted into Normandy on D Day. I thought, man, I'm sitting right here. I can touch history. Not every day you run into somebody that has a story like that. And uh, it was so precious. He told me, yeah, a buddy and mine were in there. We were buddies all the way through everyone's school and basing all stuff and parachuted the same day. We both got shot on the way down. They warned us. They said that they told them ahead of time that probably half of you won't make the ground because the Germans are known for shooting. So we're going to drop you at night. So they landed. And they both got shot, and they crawled together behind a rock there, and they realized they had another problem because they'd been warned that the Germans were dressing up like American medics. And when they came to help you, they instead of helping you, they'd shoot you. No, I thought this was so brilliant. And we just have to thank God for some of the things he shows us and does for us. But he gave Eisenhower the insight to train almost a whole battalion of black medics, African-American medics. Why? Because the Germans don't employ black people. You don't want them there. And so they're sitting there, not wanting to call out for a medic, because they they would help. It wasn't death-threatening, but it was serious. But uh, all of a sudden, who comes walking around the corner saying, does anybody need help? A black medic. And so they get the help and get restored and get back in the battle. I'm telling that story for a couple of things. Every day, and I, I'd known J. Early Wood for probably four or five years, had never heard that story, never taken the time to ask him. And um, he's in the hospital. And I went to see him about a month ago. What do you have on in the hat in the bed there? His World War II veteran hat, and I just brought tears to my eyes. My father was a World War II veteran. I've met a number of them over the years, talked to a number of them, seen a number of them with their hats on, and taking the time to thank them. You know, there's one common denominator about all those guys that served in World War II, and a lot of the mili- a lot of military guys since then too. But especially seeing these old guys, many of them are kind of more frail because they've gotten to be 90 or 94, and uh, but they've still got great life inside their mind and their thoughts. But there is an incredible, maybe you know him too, incredible humility about these men. And I, I, I ponder that and think about it all the time. Uh-oh. That's how God says it's time to shut up. No. It comes from my booth. I'm just kidding. Um, but there, there's just this incredible humility about these guys. And sitting there trying to figure it out, and, and this isn't scientific, it's just your pastor thinking about these things. Most of these guys, my father included, dearly, saw a lot of their friends die. They saw a lot of men killed in their presence while they were there, dying in their arms. Came back home and their buddy down the street didn't make it home. He was killed someplace else in the war. But they, they, had the, they had this incredible humility. And Why? I believe it's because they realized that God spared them for a purpose. God allowed them to live and their buddies didn't live. And they now realize, you know, why am I here and they're not? It must be because God has a purpose for my life. Not all of them are Christians. Many of them are. Early as My dad was. But they come home and realize, you know, I made it. And my friends, my best friend maybe, or a bunch of my friends didn't make it. And so there's a real humility when we come and listen very carefully. There's a real humility in you and I when we look up and realize, God has a purpose for my life. God, you really do? That I have this incredible purpose in my life. You know what yours and my mission needs to be? Define to that purpose. Think about it. Many of you in this room can probably say, yeah, I almost died when I was 18 in a car accident. I almost died because I fell over. Or I almost got, died because I got hit by whatever or disease. But I'm still here. Why? Why are we all here to start with? God has a purpose for each one of us. God has a purpose for us to walk worthy. God has a purpose for you and I to stand in unity with our brethren in Christ. God has a purpose for you and I to strive forward with diligence and accomplish the gospel. And finally, God has a purpose for us to suffer if need be for the cause of Christ. Not too many of us in this room are ever going to have to die for Jesus Christ. But really, there's all kinds of levels prior to dying that we can give ourselves sacrificially. Am I willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ? God has called you and I out for such a time as this to make a difference in America. I'm thankful that we have a president that desires, I believe, to go some right directions for us. You know, the ultimate solution to America today is that we need to turn our eyes back to God. How's that going to happen? We start in our lives, but then also we bring our friends along with us.